Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host on the show. And today, I'm thrilled to have Peter Fritchie on the show. Peter is professor of history at the University of Illinois, and the author or editor of a dozen or so books and many more articles and book chapters. His most recent book is titled Hitler's First Hundred Days. And in it, he argues that the first hundred days of Nazi government saw a sea change in attitudes, behaviors, and identities in Germany. It's a fascinating book, chock full of anecdotes and illustrations, but with a compelling and nuanced argument. And it's important not only for how we think of the Third Reich, but but for how we think about how people make political decisions or, or come to terms with their own identity. I'm really excited to have Peter on the show to talk about the book. So, Peter, welcome, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Well, thank you so much for having me. So, Peter, why don't we start? How, how did you come to be a historian? Well, I've always been interested in history. Um, I, I started collating encyclopedia articles, I think, in third <laughs> or fourth grade, and wanted to write a history of the world. And uh, that ended up becoming, um, in fifth grade, actually, an interest in archaeology. And I did uh, three or four years of archaeology in downstate Illinois, um, uh, digging at the largest open-air excavation uh, north of St. Louis at the Coster site. Um, Actually, was also head of the computer lab there. And um, and so that was my great love. And archaeology is great because you you work in teams. Um, but in the late seventies, for various reasons, I became more interested in in, in current events and politics and um, ideology. And so I switched over to history. The um, the minus is, of course, we work alone in archives instead of uh, drinking beer in a bar after working in the field for 12 hours, which is the case in archaeology. Uh, but the plus side is, is that you write a book. Uh, you single author a book of your own. And in archaeology on the whole, it's uh, multi-author articles that um, don't really get at the big picture. And the Coster site itself, important as it was, has never been written up. Hmm. So I made the transition to history uh, happily and have been there ever since. And it has offered me the opportunity to co- continue to work from one project to the other, to bounce from one theme to the other, um, which I've done over the last, you know, done across 200 years. And uh, sometimes I do more France, sometimes I do more Germany. Um, now I'm writing a history, a global history of the year 1942. So that brings in everything. And um, it's a huge joy. It's a huge uh, privilege uh, to have been able to make it as a historian. As you say, one of your foci, foci is, um, is Germany in the 20th century, and especially the Third Reich. How did you become interested in that? Well, uh, my, that's where my parents come from. 
but I also know German. <laughs> so I know German fluently. I mean, basically, I could approach the same problems in Poland or in France mm. or in Spain. Um, <clears throat> but um, but I, I'm fluent in German, know, know Germany so well. So that's the obvious uh, place uh, to plant myself. So you've written several uh, books about Germany or surrounding Germany. Why why did you decide to write Hitler's First 100 Days? It won't come as a surprise to your listeners that after the election of Trump, I was driving up to O'Hare, was sort of detached in my thoughts, and um, said, yes, that's exactly what I should write about, is uh, Hitler's First 100 Days. And compare it to the other 100 days that we have, and implicitly to the 100 days that we're going to get, uh, beginning then, you know, in mid-January uh, 2017. And the, but the, but, the, but behind that was also, one has never really quite figured out those first 100 days. And one's not sure what happened, and one's not sure how to approach it. So first of all, there's the question of just Germans and Hitler and that relationship. But there's, but there's larger problems about how do we approach our understanding of human behavior and how do we understand why people do things the way, uh, why they do things the way they do. Is it out of uh, situational and relational context where opportunism, fear uh, play major roles? Or does uh, more long-abiding ideology and belief, resentment, um, uh, play play a larger role? And so this is a is a is a classic test case because things occurred very quickly while denying the observer absolute certainty about what is actually happening. And that's why my book is just another book and will not be the last. Yeah, you say in there, in, in, in the book, that historians have a hard time wrestling with belief. Uh, yes. Can you say more about that? Yeah, his, well, uh, historians are splitters. Uh, we know the local language. We know the local history. We know the local customs. And so we understand why people in specific contexts act in particular ways. And we are adverse to drawing grand models about, say, comparing revolutions in France and Russia and China without having the linguistic basis and without having the archival knowledge. So we are basically local experts. And local experts pick things apart, and they see all these particulars. And so most historians are splitters and not lumpers. Um, they take things apart rather than putting things together. Uh, and yet, I've gone a little bit against that current. Um, I, I think that when you see change, whether it's in 1789 in the French Revolution or 1933 uh, in Germany, uh, or even um, the sense of the new individual and the new self, that you see through diaries and biographies and autobiographies in the 19th century. These changes are quick and sustaining. And so I think there's much more glue 
in uh, human behavior. And, um, and I do believe in true love, for better or for worse. Uh, I do believe in desire, and I do believe in ideology. And I think that is a, a, a large, large motivator, and one that um, many historians are intuitively not ready to embrace. And in the case of 1933, of course, there was lots of fear and there was lots of opportunism, opportunism. Uh, but there was also lots of desire, old desire and newfound desire. And um, that has to be recognized, it has to be measured, and it somehow has to be represented in our narratives about that year. Well, your book starts uh, on Monday, January 30th. And, and maybe you can, for, for listeners who may not know much about this, can, can you say what happened at a quarter past 11 on Monday, January 30th of 1933? Yeah, I'll just quickly set the scene. Um, that was a Monday morning. And uh, in the previous eight days, uh, there had been three major demonstrations in the cold, frigid streets of Berlin. The first one was a Nazi large Nazi demonstration outside Communist Party headquarters, followed three or four days later by an even larger communist demonstration in the same place, uh, followed on the eve of the appointment of Hitler Sunday, uh, January 29th, by a yet even larger social democratic rally in the very heart of Berlin, with hundreds of thousands of fists pumping the air, shouting, freedom, freedom, freedom. This spectacular demonstration of people power shows us not only how divided uh, Germany was, but what the stakes were uh, for those who were in power, um, because there's not democratic government at this point, the parliament is basically out of commission, and you have uh, power through the signed emergency legislation of the president that then gives the prime minister or the chancellor exec, you know, power to do things. And so very few people were really in control of the government, and they finally realized that while they've o- they always wanted to have the support of Hitler. They were going to have to pay the ultimate price to get that support and those masses of people behind Hitler uh, by appointing Hitler chancellor. And then they could do what they really wanted to do, which was to destroy parliamentary democracy and to install sleek, efficient, traditional authoritarian government. Now, that was their goal, and they finally paid what they felt was uh, the ultimate price to do it uh, in order to get the, the, the people behind Hitler were the, were the people they needed. They didn't want Hitler. But then they paid the price, and they, they took Hitler in order to get this nationalist upsurge that he represented. And so they made a devil's pact. Uh, And because they lingered at the door, even at the last minute, time ticked and the 11 o'clock appointment with the president became the 1115 appointment with the president. But then everyone fell into line and basically agreed to new elections, 
uh, which Hitler assumed would give him overwhelming enough power to, to create emergency legislation. And that's exactly what happened. They thought they could capture, they thought they could capture Hitlerites, but instead they ended up being captured by Hitler. And you say they wanted Hitler supporters. So, so what percentage of Germans actually supported Hitler and the Nazi party at that moment? Basically 40%. Um, he had, he had, he had lost votes in the previous elections in November 32 down uh, 10% uh, from his high in July uh, 32. But let's say, you know, between sympathizers and supporters, he had about 40%. But he couldn't budget beyond 40%. 40% is high in a parliamentary democracy, but it's not enough. And that's the conundrum. And we see this played out in the next years of the Third Reich with this constant interplay between huge festivals of acclamation and genuine enthusiasm, uh, but also the real hard fist uh, against the recalcitrant. And over time, and I argue over the first hundred days, the shift is in favor of the Nazis in a way uh, from the opposition. So the 40% grows for the Nazis, and the 40% against the Nazis uh, diminishes, but always in a mix of terror and acclamation. But one never quite knew exactly where the lines were drawn, and to this day we don't know. Uh, and we don't know how deep the support is, we don't know how wide it is, um, we don't know how volatile it is. On the whole, I think it's not that circumstantial. Um, but these are issues that are still debated. But it looked as though he had a lot of support. And the government, through radio and other social media, made sure that that was the dominant impression. To what extent do Germans, in early February, a couple days after this happened, to what extent do they see themselves as living in a kind of time, in abnormal times, in ways where something at some, do they see the world in on February 2nd as somehow fundamentally different than the world on January 28th? Oh, yes and no. I mean, you can find in diaries that people talk about the page of history turning. There's no doubt that Hitler was a completely new chancellor. He had never held elective office. His legitimacy to authenticity was the fact that he was a corporal in the German army. He was the youngest chancellor in German history. And so there are many reasons why uh, he was unprecedented and extraordinarily different, a new quality. He was also the leader of the largest paramilitary force in Germany. large the, These are the brown shirts, larger than the combined forces of the army and the Prussian police. And yet, on the other hand, Yasha Heifetz played the violin at the symphony orchestra the day afterwards. The great departmental white sails where you 
by bedding and sheets took place in a period of cautious economic optimism. Uh, people also had the flu. There was a big flu epidemic in Germany in early February 1933. So in some respects, life went on normally, but every single day, the frame tilted just a little bit more. And more and more people saw neighbors greeting with a Nazi badge on their chest or a Nazi salute up their sleeve uh, or a Nazi uniform. And slowly more and more people thought, oh, uh, there, there are a lot more Nazis around than I thought. And uh, the world did begin to look different. And then the executive legislation that came down in terms of banning meeting outdoor meetings, banning newspapers for two or three days, um, and ultimately, in, in two or three weeks, three weeks, uh, uh, dominating the airwaves of the radio with the new election campaign, uh, and then combining the Nazi brown shirts with the police in the largest state of Prussia, all this uh, underscored the times had changed. So he, he was appointed on Monday. Uh, by, by the weekend, one knew that this was a new era. So t- things happened enormously quickly. One, one of the things that comes across in your book is, is the importance about the way uh, supporters of the Nazis, but Germans as a whole, understood and remembered past dates. So in particular, I wonder if you could say something about the dates August 1914 and November 1918, and what those dates meant to the Nazi leadership and Nazi supporters. For German nationalists, and that means Nazis and yet many others besides, August 19, so it's about, let's say, 50% of the population, maybe a little bit more. August 1914 is this moment of remembered national unity. And it is a moment of remembered national unity that is embellished by the fact that the unity fell apart later. Um, Whether whether it was really there in 1914 or not is immaterial, but the date of 1914 becomes increasingly important. And this was a moment when Germans pulled together, and it's not so much behind the Kaiser or behind a particular foreign policy but behind the idea of the nation and that then legitimacy and strength and and German authenticity then really was evident. That's what 1914 represents. And they called it the people's community. And this was a term that was uh, not at all only Nazi, social Democrats, socialists used it too. Catholics certainly did so as well. The other big date is November 1918. Now, for many people, the revolution was good. And for many people, the revolution ended a military dictatorship, uh, the spirit of militarism, and ended a war in which all belligerents were bleeding themselves to death. But in the nationalist imagination, in the Nazi imagination, November 1918 is a betrayal a vast betrayal of German unity, even of German existence, 
And uh, this was the moment that Germany could have gone under. And over the course of time, over the course of the 1920s, over the course of the 1930s, um, more and more people came to believe this black myth of 1918 as a moment in which Germany had almost gone under. And the consequences that they drew from this myth was that uh, they had to refight 1918, win it this time, and only then could they get back to 1914. This was a nationalist myth about 1914 and 1918. But more and more Germans came to believe it <clears throat> over the course of the 20s, and certainly once the Nazis uh, established such dominance in public space and public discourse. And even non-Nazis used a vocabulary in which you can see that they believe that. And that was the Nazis' greatest success, is to establish this version of history. So 1914 and 1918. Are, are hugely important uh, red-letter dates in the imagination uh, of Germans in the early 20th century. Reading your book, the, the, the leaders, uh, once, once they have um, ascended to political leadership, but, but maybe even before, leaders of the Nazi party seem more like conductors or directors to me than, as, as you portray them, than conventional politicians. Can can you talk about the way they produced politics or produced life for the Germans? You, you highlight specific days and rallies. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, the French revolutionaries changed the calendar uh, and, and made uh, 1792 year one of the French Revolution. Hitler even uh, considered doing that as well. But he, he did introduce a new calendar. And it, and it was not related to Sundays or religious days or previous patriotic days. Uh, these were assigned um, uh, through the Nazi calendar of events. So the last um, Saturday uh, election campaign uh, before the Sunday elections uh, on March 4th, 1933, the day of national awakening. Then there was the opening of the uh, Reichstag that had been that gave the Nazis a majority with their coalition partners and choreographed this uh, handshake between the old president who was a World War One supreme leader and the corporal in the trenches, the new Chancellor Hitler. That was uh, March twenty uh, first, and then uh, uh, May first uh, was was a Monday. Uh, was not a tr- normal holiday, uh, but they made it so. Uh, May Day uh, had never been an official holiday before. So the Nazis used these kinds of events to create their own calendar and to represent through radio, uh, newspapers, pictures, demonstrations, displays, mobilization in all the towns and villages, uh, a sense of national unity that created its own reality effect because people believed that that's what they were seeing, uh, whether they agreed with it or not. And so he he did create his own calendar. Uh, The Nazis created their own calendar. 
and they created a, a kind of um, accumulation of public presence and public display that more and more Germans took to be as authentic registers of a new national spirit, a new national unity, indeed a new national selflessness that would enable Germany to prosper once again. Um, You mentioned the radio, and you talk a lot in the book about how the radio enabled a different kind of politics and a different kind of uh, community and solidarity and a different kind of living. So, So talk about how the, not the invention of the radio, but how the um, technological improvement of the radio and the ability to produce radios cheaply enough for people to have, how does that change um, people's interaction with politics and, and the Nazis? Yeah, just around the time the Nazis came to power, a radio became easy to use. You didn't need headsets. You didn't need to fiddle with tuning. Uh, stations were stable. Um And so there were a lot of technical advances that had been made so that by the time you get to 1933, you can turn on the radio, switch on your station, and listen to it reliably. And it is then uh, broadcast to the room, and no one has to individually sit there with headsets. Um, This radio, there are a variety of stations, but they're, they're more regional, and then there's a national station. And most Germans believed that the radio was more authentic, authentic uh, than the newspaper. So you could get live broadcasts of a boxing championship or a Zeppelin flyover or a um, soccer game uh, or a political rally. And you, the sounds and the cheers, it's not just the words and sentences and paragraphs. It's the cheers, the songs, the whole... Uh, Uh, the whole atmospherics that's also broadcast through the radio that people can hear for themselves. And so the radio was seen as uh, more direct and um, less edited and more authentic. And every German knows that newspapers were divided politically. You know, there's the Catholic paper, there's the socialist paper, there's the communist paper, there's the nationalist paper, there's the Nazi paper. So that was like cable TV, (laughs) the newspapers. They were so obviously partisan. And um, radio seemed to be uh, a a people's voice. That is a tendentious, silly reading, to be sure. But uh, sociological studies have confirmed this. Uh, Also for the United States, incidentally. You know, you had three or four or five big radio stations. And people were often all listening to the same program. People... So it's like in the old days, you know, with ABC, NBC, CBS, people were listening to the old, to the same things. And uh, those who had radio, uh, so this was in the United States, if you're listening to Amos and Andy or to FDR, and it's, and it's also the case uh, in Germany, uh, when you're listening to Hitler rallies, um, or even if you're not constantly listening to politics, you listen to the news, the eight o'clock news, everything stops. All the jazz stops, light entertainment stops, and everyone listens to the news at eight. So it's not just simply, you know, all the Hitler speeches, of which there were many in February and March 1933. Um, 
but it's also a rhythm of participating in the nation. Partly, partly it's fun, but everybody at eight o'clock then also uh, listen to the news, which is still a German pattern today. You know, it's now on television, but uh, it's, whether it's seven o'clock or eight o'clock, everyone everyone watches the news. So radio was seen as authentic, authentic, and then people could see for themselves in town that there were all these marches that drew people from the various neighborhoods of town, from uptown, downtown, across the tracks, Catholics as well as Protestants, and a huge public display of of unity. And uh, they saw that for themselves. And so that that, that validated uh, the Nazi message that they were actually the stewards uh, and the choreographers and the guardians of, of... of a German unity that no other party had attained. And partially they were correct. They were the most diverse party in Germany. They were best represented in precincts across Germany. They were Germany's largest party. So one of the things you write in the book, uh, you say consent was generated through coercion, inclusion, and uplift through exclusion. We've talked uh, a bit about how this inclusion was achieved. Uh, what role does coercion play, um, and 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 is coercion first or simultaneous, or or how does this all play out? Yeah, it's a comp. It's a, yeah, it sounds like a complicated math problem, doesn't it? If, if you agree <laughs> that the innocence of the National Unity Days of 1914 was forever compromised by the Civil War in 1918, if you agree with that, then you have to refight the Civil War of 1918 in 1933 in order to get any kind of innocence. But it'll never be the old innocence. It's always going to be a vigilant state of preparedness against domestic and uh, foreign enemies. And therefore, to have inclusion to have unity, to have survival, to have prosperity, you have to have a siege mentality. And so good times are predicated on bad practices. Inclusion and community is premised on exclusion and extermination. And uh, and if you accept that, <clears throat> then you have to fight the war uh, to get the peace. And that is an equation that more and more Germans agreed with, whether consciously or not. And so communists, uh, Jews, socialists, people who were then not seen as political opponents, but as actually shirkers and traitors and and people who refuse to join in in these community building efforts uh, so not loyal opposition but but traitors um, would then be would then be excluded and all these festivals in the spring of 1933 achieved that effect of building the us and then creating the them in addition to the festivals you have the opening of the concentration camps, which happen at the same time and are also publicized. And that also, of course, creates 
us uh, versus them. Uh, the them who have to be uh, disposed of if they're totally recalcitrant or more often re-educated in some way and, uh, and, then, and then return to the community. Uh, but you need these coercive measures in order to create the community. So you have to go through 1918 again in order to get to 1914. And that's why coercion and consent are, are locked in, interlocked with one another. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of um, a vigilant, sober, shall we say, uh, attitude about creating political community in a post-revolutionary age. And one of the, the those calendar dates, those festivals that, that we haven't mentioned yet is the day of the boycott. So um, maybe you could talk a little bit about the, the April 1st and the boycott of Jewish businesses and what that meant um, for this effort at inclusion and exclusion. Yeah, in a word, uh, I, I think the boycott was successful. Everyone thinks that the boycott was not successful because people wanted to shop uh, and to some extent did. Uh, the boycott was successful because there were crowds and crowds of people on the streets that Saturday morning in German cities in order to see the boycott. Nobody had any intention of shopping. They were there uh, to see the spectacle of this extraordinary boycott uh, by a party of private businesses. And whether they agreed with the boycott or not, they were in town uh, to see the boycott. Uh, they were not people who were hindered from shopping. The prelude to the boycott is a, sort of kind of a three-week back-and-forth campaign uh, across the Atlantic between um, German atrocities against Jews had, had increased markedly after the March 5th elections, um, there were spontaneous boycotts and closures of Jewish stores, violence against Jewish individuals. These became items in the New York Times. Um, the New York Times items then created rallies in Madison Square Garden and uh, headlines in the newspapers in London and New York that then uh, created created hysteria in Germany that now the old war atrocity propaganda from World War I by the Allies was being repeated. And so the Germans put themselves into the mode of being the victims of the Allies in World War I and, uh, and then uh, lashed out at their Jews uh, in order to punish the Allies who were somehow collectively in cahoots with German Jews. And so the attitude of so many Germans was to put themselves back into a World War I mentality, which is exactly what the Nazis wanted. So therefore, we have these dates again, 1914, 1918, World War I. We're right back there in the mental slum uh, of World War I. And that was the Nazis' great, uh, great success that people thought in these terms, thought in terms of atrocity propaganda, in terms of allied overkill, in terms of what 
What do the Allies know about what we're doing in Germany, protecting German honor? And that's exactly the circuitry <laughs> with which uh, the Nazis wanted to operate. They didn't want Germans to admit, yes, there have been atrocities against the Jews. Uh, what they wanted to do was pitch this about German honor um, and German self-determination uh, and German uh, dishonor at the hands of the Allies, not only in Versailles, but now once again in 1933, as we hear from the boomboxes of Madison Square Garden. And you write about, in, excuse me, about um, uplift through exclusion. You extend that, um, you include Jews, but you extend that to uh, some of the, um, I don't know, racial cleansing programs, the, the positive eugenics and negative eugenic programs that will go on. Um, much, of, much of which, of course, continues or perhaps legally begins after that first hundred days. So, so how much, how much of what happens in terms of exclusion after the hundred days is implicit or perhaps preordained in those first few weeks and months of, of, of Nazi rule? One, one of the ways to think about the Nazis is to really think of themselves as, as, as uh, determined national renewers. Some of them would work on one strand of policy. Maybe it was ethnic Germans abroad. Some would pursue anti-Semitism. Others would pursue the problems of uh, the costs of um, long-term gen- uh, hereditary costs, alleged hereditary costs, but also medical costs of having um, uh, taking care of people with disabilities. Others would want more access to public health care for pregnant women and, and postnatal care. Everyone worked their own strand. And, and thus, when we see it from below, we see everyone working their own line. And it's really not just uh, commands from above. It's self-mobilization uh, from below in which all many things, including infant mortality, goes down in Germany. On the other hand, um, uh, involuntary uh, sterilizations go up. All of these things are beginning to be discussed in the first 100 days, but the legislation is passed. Uh, a lot of it is passed on day 161. Uh, coincidentally, the 14th of July, the Bastille Day, the French Revolution Day, uh, 1933. Uh, and uh, as of January 1st, 1934, the Germans are allowed to involuntarily, uh, the states allowed to involuntarily sterilize those it deems uh, racially unworthy. And those are not Jews, those are Aryans uh, with certain alleged hereditary mental and physical problems ranging from sexual promiscuity to schizophrenia. And in the end, uh, 400,000 people will be sterilized and 400,000 people will be caught up. Other people will be caught up in the sterilization courts. So that's 800,000. If you think of their family members in a population of about 70 million, this is a huge effort to weed out undesirable Aryans in order to grow your 
uplift Aryan garden. And that's, I think, what re, uh, listeners should recognize. That's the metaphor, weeding in order to create a flourishing garden. You can't have a garden without getting rid of the weeds. That was the, that was the assumption. And so uh, sterilization is directed, uh, directed against Aryans. So there's another date that um, comes up in this book repeatedly, but we haven't talked about, at least in terms of how people think about the past or the present or the future. Uh, and that's, of course, January 30. So, so at the end of this 100 days, um, how do people in Germany think of the date January 30, 1933? The Nazis were able to convince even non-Nazis or enough non-Nazis, that this is not the coincidental date when Hitler was appointed chancellor. It is a new era, a new epoch. We will never go back. We never can go back. We don't want to go back. But even if we did, we can't go back. And so all at once, the political formations that had marched in the frigid cold the week before January 30th seemed obsolescent and superannuated. And a new administration of life was going to take hold. And one had to get on board and had to adjust if one was going to um, take care of one's family, marry, have a job, uh, Signs of economic improvement um, were occurred relatively quickly. And um, the idea that one would return to the Weimar Republic was, was, was incomprehensible, even to old social Democrats. And, one, and another way to think about this, and I don't think this took hold in the first hundred days, but it took hold soon enough. It was possible to love the Third Reich. That is to say, all the revival efforts, the renewal efforts, the um, efforts to, to uh, cut infant mortality, to think about Germans beyond the borders, to increase uh, health and health delivery systems, uh, to create a new sort of post-class uh, kind of um, uh, social interactions. Uh, to minimize the differences between um, Protestants and Catholics. Those were the mixed marriages, and Hitler prohibited that term, mixed marriage, to be used between Protestants and Catholics, to create a new sense of German strength and unity, um, to be able to militarize the nation in appropriate ways. This was the Third Reich in which people participated, and they felt keenly about it, whether they voted for Hitler or not. And, and many people who had opposed the Weimar Republic had been working on this agenda for 15 years. It was possible to love the Third Reich and yet actually hate the lo local Nazi down the block. So um, people felt very invested in their efforts, but that did not necessarily make them um, uh, uh, you know, devoted thoughtless uh, followers of local Nazi commandants. So it was possible to love the Third Reich and hate the Nazis. 
Um, you know, most people didn't have this position, but it's just it's just theoretically it was possible. And that's how you should think about one should think about Germany in these years. And that's why no one that's why they hated Hitler in 45, because he had destroyed the Third Reich that they loved. Um, my my assistant director for the honors program and I are busy creating using technology, creating some means for the students in my program to keep a collective diary of the strange experience of living through um, shutdowns and exclusions and stay in place orders. And is there an explosion of diary writing or letter writing in, in, in these hundred days? Do people have some kind of consciousness that they need to record what they're living through? Yes, indeed there is. And that's exactly your point about what does January 30th, 33 mean, right? Uh, there is a new era. There is a new consciousness that, 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 that there's a new task ahead. Uh, to, to hold this fast, and that this date means something different uh, than other dates. Uh, there is an explosion of diary writing, both by opponents and by supporters, and and people in between. Uh, and people interpret the Nazi message in their own way uh, in their diaries and feel that they are continuing their old self and their old policies and their old thoughts and, and hopes and aims uh, inside the new regime, uh, there is indeed an explosion uh, of, uh, of of diary writing, and for some, it's solace and um, <clears throat> um, an escape and a way to to vent anger and 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 uh, indignation. Uh, but for others, it's it's to negotiate uh, between their self and and the collective self and see where they come down. No one's a hundred percent fanatic Nazis. Oh, right. Uh, there's there's as few hundred percent Nazi fanatic Nazis as there are hundred percent fanatic Nazi uh, opponents. Everyone's someplace in between, and um, and they have to figure it out. And they have to figure out what what's meaningful, um, what matters now, uh, what's the direction of history, what's my role to community, race, nation, civil rights, individual um, dignity, uh, and they they negotiate these spaces in, 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 in the diary. But this is the shared experience of the Third Reich, and it already means that the whole vocabulary of the Third Reich is inside each diary entry. Um, of course, the most famous diary that we have, perhaps of the 20th century, uh, is Victor Klemperer's uh, diary, who reports on, on being a, a Jew, but also on being a German and also being a citizen of the 20th century. And he, he, he just notes, he talks about looking for popular voices, popular attitudes, popular gestures. What do you see in the dentist's room? What do you, how do you see people talking? You know, my son said today, why don't words get coronavirus? Because they have, because they do social distancing. They have spaces between them and they don't touch, you know, just little, little things like that. This is what should go into the diaries. Where, where are people's hands in their pockets? New York Times had a fantastic uh, series of people holding on the subway uh, the poles, right, with with their elbow or their, you know, whatever, um, not to touch it directly with their hands. Notice these small details. That's what should go in the di diaries. That's what people also put in their diaries. Um, in 1933, there's the small little things that they saw 
what words they allowed themselves to say about Jews um, or about new times or about what was necessary. Uh, and that suddenly creates a legitimacy. You know, what is necessary? Who is outside? Where do I stand? Um, and, and, and diaries are, are just fantastic uh, registers of this. And uh, people should keep diaries, uh, even notationally. It doesn't have to be day by day. Um, uh, but just, you know, they can self-reflect, of course, too. But it's, it's the details that, that you see around you that, that, that that's so incredible. Uh, but it certainly happened in 1933. Incidentally, it also happened in 1789 uh, after, uh, with the French Revolution, you have an explosion of, autobiographies, memoirs, diaries, letters. Um, so these are, these, are, these are moments. So, so I'd ask a question that's very specifically aimed at our graduate students and young faculty who are listening. Um, you do an amazing job of reproducing specific details in your book, um, written as if you were a novelist or a journalist. How, as a practical matter, as you do your research, do you record or file or note uh, what you're reading in a way that will allow you to come back and recreate that? Well, I take notes on my computer, and so that's just a file card system. And then I can, you know, I just write down whole paragraphs constantly. It seems... My wife says she has a photographic memory and thinks, she thinks it's idiotic the way I do it. <laughs> but that's the way I do, that's the way I do it. I mean, she, you know, I, I don't remember Kafka's novel. I have to write down the key passages. And um, I'll tell you, I'll tell your uh, listeners one thing. You, you read the newspaper day by day. Um, not, a, not, you know, you don't sample. You, you just read it every day. Uh, and I've read I've read so many newspapers day by day. Um, and uh, the, the details just leap out at you. The little stories, the yo-yo, for example, the yo-yo fad in Berlin. Where are you ever going to get that if you don't go uh, to the newspapers? Um, uh, you read those day by day. They have a local section. That's the most important. And they have a, sort of a feature living section. That's the second most important. And then the way the headlines are uh, written is the third most important. You just go through it day by day. It's hard to do it on microfilm. Um, but, uh, that's the way to do it. Uh, you read lots of novels, but, but it's the newspapers really, um, get any, any, any diary you can get, uh, look, if it's in bad handwriting, you're not going to read it. <laughs> Klemperers was very bad handwriting. So someone did, uh, uh, amazing work, but, um, you know, any diary you can get, there's, there's a lot of diaries out there. Um, <clears throat> But that's that's what that's where you get those uh, where you get those details. So just a couple questions to conclude. Um, I wonder where you see your book fitting into the broader historiography of the period. Well, the big debate in German history is a friendly but still basically uh, quite a fundamental one. Is um, do we basically understand the Nazis under the term desire? Uh, do we understand it in terms of contingency, whether it's the economic emergency of the Great Depression or the uh, circumstances of uh, 
um, overwhelming firepower and violence. And um, I'm in the desire camp, but um, but that is uh, my book is a contribution to that. Um, I did position my chapter on coercion before the one on consent. Richard Evans, if you're listening, uh, but uh, um, and 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 I and I and I agree with that. But there, but but people are unwilling to accept the idea that people wanted to become Nazis, and uh, they're not voting for the Holocaust right right here. But um, but they are voting for a system of inclusion and exclusion. And if you read um, a very generous review of my book in the Library Journal, they talk all about fear, intimidation, and opportunism. As if the idea of desire never existed. Well, we're going to have to look at the 2016 election. We're going to have to look at the 1980 election, both watershed elections. And we're going to have to decide what's the vocabulary we use. And do we have the right vocabulary? And are we using the right vocabulary? So my book is not just telling you what vocabulary to use. Uh, my book is, 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 is pitching the fact that we have to rethink the vocabularies. And maybe our vocabularies are too limited. And fascism remains a huge epistemological problem. That is, we don't quite yet know how to approach it. Um, and the very quandaries of post-2016 elections show that, yet again, we don't understand what is populism. Is it cultural? Is it economic? Is it this? Is it that? Um, and so, or is its right-wing variety fundamentally different from its left-wing variety? So these are totally open questions, and we're just ex- trying to expand the way we think about why human beings do the things they do and band together in, in the ways they do and under what conditions of, of solidarity, exclusion, and inclusion. Uh, and, and these are words that mean everything to us. We can now say borders and boundaries and so on. Well, Richard Evans, if you're listening, I'm happy to give you a chance to come back on the show. and. Um comment on Peter's um, perspective. Uh, but until then, um, this is a, a channel on genocide studies. What what can people who study other moments of societal crisis, other times that lead to mass violence, what, what can people who study other things learn from your book that might help them understand their periods? The perpetrator thinks he's a victim, number one. That's the 1918 date, right? That the Germans think they're fighting against 1918. The perpetrator thinks he's a victim. Number two, unrelated to that, you cannot save Jews from Auschwitz. This whole discussion about bombing Auschwitz and all that, first of all, is only relevant after late September 1944. Uh, but does not make sense. Uh, we, we couldn't save anybody from Auschwitz, basically. The only way you could do it was to allow penniless 
Yiddish-speaking immigrants from Europe into the United States in 1938. When you did not know about the Holocaust, and nobody knew about the Holocaust, and that wasn't part of the stakes. That's the only way you could have saved anyone from the Holocaust. So that's relevant today. Um, but people in 1938 don't have the word Holocaust marked on them. And once they do, it's too late. And I tell you, I was in Damascus on a vacation in June 2010. And uh, I don't know whether it was the Euro Cup or the World Cup, but uh, that's what they were doing in the bars. Uh, people were very nice. My mother broke her arm on the streets of Baghdad and brought her to the hospital. It cost $400. I said, can we pay in dollars? They said, yes. Can I pay by credit card? They said, no. I had to go back and forth between the hotel and the hospital. Policemen would take me on their you know, motorcycle and bring me there. Never, never my wildest dreams would I have imagined this uh, infernal violence, state-supported torture, um, horrors. And of course now ethnic, uh, if not cleansing, then mistrust. Uh, this can happen extremely quickly. One does not know where and when. And the 1938 refugees had no idea what was going to happen in 1942. But the only way you're going to save them from 42 is if you do something in 38. And that, I guess that's the other lesson. Um, I, I understand full well you can't let everybody in. Uh, I understand that. Um, but uh, we have to understand also that we need, a, a, a need generosity. And that has been exhibited now because of World War II. And every Jewish diarist wrote for an audience that they assumed that was going to be like them. And Frank wrote for people who would understand her diary. And Frank wrote for people who she assumed would, would read her diary and understand her diary. And Frank had hope in humanity. The Jews in the ghetto also did, despite no signs of that humanity uh, helping them. And, uh, and now uh, we're more alert. We're more alert. Let's hope we hope we, let's hope let's hope that works. Well, that seems an appropriate place to end. I want to thank you so much for uh, the generosity of time. Um, I always end with the same question. Um, and that's to ask you to recommend, a, a book or a documentary or a play or a movie or whatever it might be, something that was meaningful to you while you wrote this book that you would recommend to the audience. I'm ready for you, Kelly. <laughs> so <laughs> there is no better introduction into the new rhythms and logics of Weimar Germany uh, than Alfred Dublin's novel, Berlin Alexanderplatz. It was serviceably translated back in 1932 or 31. There's a new edition now. I haven't read it. But it is a great, great, difficult book. But not as hard as James Joyce. 
And um, around the same time that Dublin was writing this book, <clears throat> which is 27, 28, uh, there was a movie made, and it's probably the best best movie of a city ever made. And it's called Berlin Symphony of a Big City uh, by Ruttman. It's exactly one hour, and it's four acts, uh, and it's extraordinary. Um, I think you can find it on YouTube. The best book <clears throat> on the Nazi seizure of power, why, why individual Germans became did what they did, and the, the divisions in the small town and in the neighborhood and the parish and even the family. It's a book that was written 55 years ago uh, by a German, by American historian called William Sheridan Allen. He taught at Buffalo for many years, and the book is simply called The Nazi Seizure of Power, the Experience of a Small German Town, and it is just the best. It's a cross between anthropology and history. He was able to still interview people uh, in the mid early 60s. And um, it is the most vivid, really vivid account. And it stays totally close to the uh, town itself. Uh, so those, those in, in the genre of novel, film, and history book is what I would recommend to your uh, uh, listeners. Well, I suspect strongly that those of us who live in the United States and Europe will suddenly have much more time on our hands to read. So those will be good recommendations to keep us busy while we're in lockdown. So so thank you again. And I know you said you're working on a book on, I think you said 1942. And I hope when that's done, you'll come back and join us on the New Books Network. But until then, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you so very much, Kelly. 